If you can't identify as a business, not as a team, not as a department, but as a business, only top 10 pieces of information you need to drive that business that you don't have enough focus or clarity around your strategy and your direction. So isolating the top 10 pieces of information is really easy. And it the way you get it is by talking. Talk to your team. And I, when I mean team, I mean every aspect of your team. So if it's not realistic to talk to your entire firm, if you're a large firm, but make all the senior leadership team talk to each other. Make them as a collective, as a collaborative effort, decide on the top 10 and put things into perspective as a singular business unit. If you're a small team, if you're a mum and dad, you know, talk to the five employees that you have and all seven of you decide on the top 10 list of the information this business needs to thrive. Welcome to the Unfair Advantage Project. Unique perspectives, practical insights, and unexpected discoveries directly focused on giving you the unfair advantage. Introducing your hosts, Nadia Hughes and Terence Toe. Welcome to the Unfair Advantage Project. I'm Terence Toe. I'm the founder and managing director of Strategic Corporation, and I'll be one of your hosts today. I'm Nadia Hughes. Yes, thank you, Terence. And I'm so happy to be here. I'm from Smart Business Solutions. And today we're interviewing Jenny Jenke, whom I really wanted to come and share your insights. Thank you. Hi, everyone. I'm Jenny Junkier. Nice to meet you all. <laughs> all what an intro. So Jenny is from Junkier Era Consulting. And maybe just tell us a little about who you are and what you do. Sure. To begin with. Thank you. Well, the founder of Junkier New Era Consulting. It's a relatively new type of consulting firm. It's akin to a management consulting firm. We focus on really challenging businesses in how they operate currently to really reflect on best practice, if you like, and try to say, you know, where can you optimize elements in your business to be able to be ready to face all the challenges of the new era and hence the name New Era Consulting. Sounds. And how did you come up with this idea? What need in the market did you see? I've been in business for a really long time, an accountant by trade, uh, and I've watched and worked and consulted to businesses from, you know, so many different industries, small organizations to really, really large ones. Uh, you know, my one of the biggest ones I've worked with is an internationally listed company, a manufacturing company. And one thing that was really common to me is that whether you're small or large, business pain points are the same. They do not change. Business is business. No matter what scale, there may be lots of zeros after the big company. But the actual everyday challenges and the everyday decision-making process for all businesses are very common in terms of there's a theme there. And I just started observing themes. And so when I started figuring out the themes and then I started looking at all the things that were going wrong with organizations, I tried to figure out what was causing it to go wrong. And I think I've come up with that solution. And that was the inspiration for what Neuro Consulting is. So you're telling me your expertise is applicable to Joe Blog somewhere in this suburb sitting there with his wife trying to run the business and to the international airport, there would be the same principle applicable to both of them. I'm going to put it out there. Yes, I do say so. Yeah. Oh, wonderful. And you came up to this conclusion by observing and consulting businesses. Yeah, because I was able to deal with so many different industries. For example, I'd work with manufacturing clients and then I'd work with retail clients and I'd work with government clients. And the same things were being asked of me. 
the exact same things, you know, staff issues. I mean, if you don't employ staff, obviously you won't have the issue. But if you're even a small business, like a tradie business even has one staff, the same issue of performance management and how to get that employee engaged is the same issue, you know, a $100 billion company has and 100,000 employees engaged. Different scale, but same concept. So all we are, just the scale. Yes. Yeah. You just got to figure out where, what scale you are. Okay. Well. <laughs> and I think a lot of that is just because, well, we spoke about this briefly before, we're dealing with, it's still business. Yes. And it's still people. Yes. And there's a common relationship with business and people that someone told me recently that there is no such thing as business. It's relationships of people coming together to do common things that form businesses. And I really think that's really true because, you know, one of the old sayings you'll hear, in ass, uh, people are your assets. And I think a lot of organizations have forgotten that or go, oh, that's not true. You know, my product is my asset or my, you know, my brains of the entire operations is my asset or the IP I have is my asset. But actually, if you don't have people to run all that, you actually didn't have no business. So it comes back down to understanding people and understanding all the other elements around people that actually form together nicer to, to make what this thing we call business. To be honest, I'm actually very now excited to go to the core of these challenges you have identified and stop dancing around yeah. it. I just want to know them. And as an accountant, I do know some of them are very common ones at every business I consult. However, I'm interested to see from perspective of larger businesses and how applicable it to smaller ones as well. Okay, well, let's start with one of the first challenges, I think, is because firstly, I talk about challenges that people don't actually talk about often. Most of the time, if you go, what's a challenge in your business, big or small, they go cash flow. They go, oh, you know, my staff aren't, aren't capable of doing this. They get the common what I call symptoms. But actually not the challenge. The challenge is actually behind that. And it's something that people actually don't even acknowledge is a challenge, but that I feel that I want to bring it to the surface and go, if we talk about challenges in the following way, so for example, the first way I talk about is prioritization. Not many of you will go, oh, prioritization is my challenge, but it actually is one of the biggest challenges for big or small. So I'll give you an example. So let's say you have a a mum and dad business. And they have very limited um, number of staff and they have very limited number of resources. You know, there's not much cash flow there and they need to grow. They may need to do social media marketing, but they don't know how to. They need to buy a piece of equipment that's about to fail. They may need to get a new employee because administration in the back end is really suffering. They need to do, let's say, you know, five other things. How do they decide which one is the most important when every decision requires funding? and time, which they don't have. How do they actually decide? And the issue is prioritization becomes the massive saver in this scenario because if they decide well in the right order, what happens is the cascading effect. They might pick maybe perhaps the hardest one, but the most important one first, put the time and the money behind that. And what they might see is two or three of that list start dropping off at the end because getting the priority right helps it really really helps and so with large organizations it's even like again a larger scale of a problem you have now let's say different departments you've got hr marketing sales operations they've all each department has let's say five project initiatives ready to go and so if you add that up across the organization you have let's say 50 initiatives and as an organization how do you run 50 initiatives at the same time even if you have all the people and, and all the money, because a lot of organizations have the liberty of having the people and the money. 
but they still don't get it right. Like they're still project failures. They're still the wrong initiatives that start and then stop because the business changes their mind. Why does that happen? Tell me why. I can't wait. Just <laughs> you just suspense. It's because of the wrong prioritization. They so, don't get it right, and I, that's the thing. You just explain a typical scenario of any business who comes in my boardroom and they want to grow. And they do have this but the issue of what do I grab first? Yeah. Everything falls on the Everything's floor. important, right? Everything's yeah. urgent, right? That's Surely. Right. And what do you do? Where do you start with yeah. them? How do you point so, out in this particular case scenario, mom and dad, what's their first priority? Okay. So what I do, I point them to remind them, first of all, of their vision. Because the vision, and if you've done the vision well, it's a guiding star. Like for mom and dad businesses even. They have that passion. It came from somewhere. I call that passion or what they were originally trying to do in business, their vision. Large companies, you know, they have a much more sophisticated vision. But again, the founders or the organizations continue to have something that's driving them. Let's start with that vision. And the vision itself is not going to help you prioritize, right? But what the vision allows you to do is set the right strategy. So when you have the right strategy, which is to pursue that vision, that's what your prioritization starts. That's where it starts. So let's say this mum and dad business has to, you know, they need to grow their business. And because for them to fulfill their vision of living a comfortable life and bringing, uh, think of a company that you've worked with as a small business. Well, I will take a dental practice. Okay, dental practice, right? So this dentist really wants to make sure you know, for what, why they became a dentist in the first place, they're passionate about, you know, let's say not saving people's teeth, but, you know, preserving people, the health of people's teeth, right? Yes, they don't like root canals, but they do like nice smiles. Correct. And so if, they, if their vision was to, you know, have a nice smile on everyone so that everyone can have the confidence of walking around with great teeth, and that's their vision, for them to succeed in that, they need to be able to have an influence over people to do that. For them to have an influence, they need to be able to grow enough so they can actually touch as many patients as they can how do they do that so growing and being bigger is one way to influence everyone or as many people as you can with their teeth and so usually a growth component is part of most people's strategy that's one strategy the second is what about telling people about how to take care of their teeth they're not going to get to everyone realistically so they may have to like do it indirectly like so putting the message out about how to take care of teeth wouldn't that still be achieving their vision, even if they're not the ones getting fees for it, but they're still achieving their vision? So this strategy of how do I achieve that vision comes down to, well, what can I focus on? And in this case, let's say we focus on two things, a strategy of growth, or I need to touch as many patients as I can, but I also want to like basically help people even if I can't touch them, right? That is my two-part strategy. If there's clarity around that, shouldn't that then let them go okay well what do i need to do in one or number two number one or number two that is my only focus and so now you have seven like let's say a list of 10 things you have to do one of them is being social media so where does that actually fit in into the strategy of one and number two is it important to do number one and is it important to do number two if it's not then it's not high on that list then what about going out there and actually uh, promoting your business to be able to have people come to you is that going to help number one or number two? If it is, it's most likely going to help number one, right? It's going to help the growth of the business. If more people know you're there in that location, it's going to help the growth of the business. So then it becomes now high on the priority because you're putting in context. Priority is about why is it a priority? It's a priority in context of what I'm trying to do. 
what is the core when you're trying to do something? Your strategy. And so that is how it works in the small business where you have your list of 10 things, but rechange the order, almost split the or split the list between the two strategies and go, okay, this item is for this strategy and this item is for that strategy. And now that I've got the list separated, I'm now going to also reprioritize between this is the number one thing. This is the best bang for my buck, right? So if you do that, as simple as that, that list, so just that, that focus and that context, that will help you prioritize, right? Now, in the case of a large organization, we take it a little bit more sophisticated. We do it in a framework style. So we have this concept of, you know, vision strategy and then all the different components of the organization. And we usually workshop this with a larger client because they've got multiple people here that have multiple opinions about what is the next step and what's more important. And usually that's biased opinions. Like the marketing director goes, so clearly social media is the most important. And, the, you know, the operations guy, no, I need a new equipment. So the difficulty with prioritization is prioritizing the business needs versus the personal ones in the larger scale. That's the complexity with larger companies. So what the way I look at it all, all the time, I, I use this metaphor, is our business is a baby and our directors of the business or business owners are parents. Mm-hmm. It's quite often one or two. And usually the needs of the baby has to come first, not the individual ambitions about I'm a better parent or I need to fulfill this. this. If Everybody in the organization or in a business will look after the baby and act in its best interest. Things will get done. I could not agree with you more. And see, that's one thing that not many people talk about is the leaders that are entrusted. So I equate that to the same analogy, but the parents in my context are leaders, right? And the people also older children of the baby. And so older children, the older siblings and the leaders are both there to try to make this baby grow and make nourish it, right? But what the problem is, there is a like underlying tone of selfishness in business society, probably more prominent in larger businesses because with a family business or a small business, their personal interest is the business interest. So there's not much separation there. However, when you go larger scale businesses, you have leaders that are entrusted to make the right decisions for the business. But then you have things like bonuses and remuneration that and KPIs that sometimes aren't aligned with what the right thing is for the business. And now you have a disconnect. Do they make decisions in their decision-making framework based on what's in it for me or what's the best interest for the business? And what I'm fortunately I'm going to say is a lot of people can't put other, that business first. I appreciate that it's a human behavior to look after oneself, but I think that's the challenge we need to address. Like everyone needs to be able to say that out loud. How do we change the behavior of leaders to make them be selfless in the context of decision-making when it comes to a business? That is a challenge that I say large businesses face, and that's kind of the challenge we address. So the answer for that for us is that KPIs, which is one usual way to sort of drive behavior, should, could be used to drive behavior rather than outcome. So try to make them be rewarded for making decisions selflessly is the best way to get there. I know it's like an oxymoron, but it's the best way to get them to be act selflessly. But even just awareness, even holding accountability for it. Too many people get caught up in the results and, you know, a lot of businesses are making making a lot of money. So the leaders look great, but are they great leaders? I don't always think so. And so that's part of the spoken truth. You know, leadership, it's more than just 
what you get your people to do. It's about how well you do it. So can you give us an example of a KPI that focuses on behavior rather than outcome? Sure. So, for example, most people have KPIs around, you know, um, hitting profit targets, right? That's mm-hmm. a common KPI. What I would do differently is I'd go, okay, what behavior do I want them to show like, in order to drive profits, but I want to look focused on the behavior? So I look at, let's say, leadership engagement. I would want to have a KPI, perhaps say, around the feedback of all their subordinates that are underneath that leader. You know, asking questions such as, is how often do you feel that the leader make the right decision in that sort of circumstance? And so asking almost like a survey-based response. And so the leader is accountable to their team. So the team needs to be inspired that and see firsthand that the leader is demonstrating through example, the right decision-making process because what do you think is going to happen if they're demonstrating that and how do you think it's going to filter down to the rest of the organisation? And how do you keep that process, I mean, do you try to keep the process objective still? Because yes. you've got personalities come into this and that may become subjective. So how do you keep it objective? Well, I actually think I almost want it subjective because you think about a leadership position and it's their employee and the team member they're meant to be responsible for. How is a leader a leader without getting to know you personally, Nadia? Like, how am I not going to be judged subjectively, uh, objectively from you? You are the person I need to be judged by. You are, I'm the one leading you. So I don't think you look at me and go, you're a star, Jenny, because, you know, you made our company get, you know, 500,000 a profit. You should be looking at me going, you're amazing because you made me want to work for you. And I loved every minute of it. And that's how I should actually be judged. This is actually, I'm very passionate about leaders versus managers. Yes. And this is where I think leadership is about exactly this point, how you make people feel and operate under your leadership. Mm-hmm. This is effective leadership that I constitute when you at your full capacity in the right place and you come to you and you know you're part of contributory force. Yeah. That's how you feel. Don't you think that if, for example, I did inspire you and you're one of my team members, I did inspire you, don't you think together we would still meet that $500,000 profit, let's say profit target, most likely? Like what are the probability of us if two people are pushing as hard as each other, right, in the same direction for the same, what we call just general business goals? Like it's okay to have business goals. There should be targets. There should be something everyone's aiming for, but... If you did it together, then everyone has to work less to do it. Whereas if I'm trying to push you hard to do it and then I get the credit for it, how does that work? What I am interested in is you have said before, and it was very intriguing, that you're going to talk about things people don't want to talk about. They don't like to bring it onto surface. Mm-hmm. It's unspoken truth you're going to say today. Yep. And this is what I want. So first unspoken truth is priority. Yep. What's your second one? The second one is related to the first one. It's about capabilities. You know, who puts their hand up and going, I can't do this. I don't know how to do this. Not many people have the strength and the bravery to actually say that in a business environment and feel okay about that, feel secure in themselves about that. And it's unfortunately an honesty system. Most people try to fake it until they make it. And people are lucky enough they don't get called out on it. But unfortunately, no one wins in that scenario. And so if you look at capability gaps in your organization and you're really, really honest in that reflection, a lot of the capability gaps, as I said in the earlier section, is starts from leadership, right? A lot of leaders aren't born leaders they need to learn the skill of leadership and they don't they just get to that position through you know hard work but 
once they're there, they don't care to, you know, embody the full capability skill set that leaders should. And that's one huge error in business. But then if you talk about small businesses and even large businesses, then there's just general people capability skill set. So let's talk about the mum and dad business. They came, became passionate about what they did, the, the dentistry. And they learned that, you know, that gentleman would have learned how to become a, you know, a medical practitioner in the dentistry field and would be a, an expert in that area. But when did he ever go to business school? When did he ever learn how to manage some staff? That skills is not organic necessarily. It's an understated skill, but it's stuff like, you know, you and I and Terrence, we learn that skill, right? So it's not easily transferable to people. So I think people are kidding themselves if they go, oh, you know what? We have an organization. There's lots of people here. Therefore, we have all the capabilities and skill sets to run this. You actually don't. Like even we don't have all the capabilities we need to continue doing it. We are constantly learning. So why aren't the people that actually don't have business skill sets as their primary trade or their primary skill set, why aren't they either learning more about it and, you know, and upskilling themselves or getting uh, you know outsourced help to be able to fill that capability gap? Because then it becomes an outsourcing versus internal you know, skill development question and that becomes a business decision. But I think I know the answer. I think I know when person starts suspecting that he's pretty good and hot stuff in his area of expertise, they start looking at their boss. It's an, an employment case usually have, and they have first entrepreneurial seizure. I can do better than this. I know more than my boss does. That's usually a, a school of thought happening there. And I also see all those mistakes he's making, which he shouldn't be making. Therefore, I'm ready. I, I can do better this than this. So this comparison with a poor example makes people wanting to go into the business and they think they can be better what than their boss. What happens then? they on their own and they suddenly the perspective shifts because they haven't been experiencing those challenges. Their prick of a boss was looking after this side of the... Which they never saw. Exactly. And now they have to face it and they don't have the skills. They only acquire the skill of judgment. Mm-hmm. They haven't acquired the skill of leadership or skill of the business set of skills. And this is where this gap becomes, after first year in business, this gap becomes so significant. They, they realize it. Yeah. And usually that's where you have people coming to you because everybody is accepting in the first couple of years, I won't make money. So they can run it as poorly as they can. But after two years, they become restless. Why I still don't see profits? And this is when they start addressing this. They don't go into the business with a set of skills. They go into the business with a set of judgments. Yes, I agree. And they don't necessarily acquire their set of skills either. Um, because I don't know at what point they acknowledge, I don't have these capabilities set. I just don't. And so I don't think many people say that to themselves often enough. I say it. And when I say it, I then go and do something about it. So the hardest part is to say it. And then if if you are brave enough to say it, then doing something about it is not difficult. There's online courses. There is other people you can learn from. You can buy the expertise if you need to. And so, but the thing is, unless you actually fix the capability gaps by getting people in the know, it's like, you know, the iceberg that sits all pretty on the outside. You know, you can, as a business owner, you can keep everything together on the surface, but you know, you're peddling as hell, like down below to make this thing work, you know, because all the pressures of cash flow and all the other little pressures that come along with business that, you know, administration that you weren't expecting, 
now consume your life and you don't even have time to go ahead and do something about it. So just acknowledge that one of the reasons why that is the case is there is a lack of capabilities there. So go and do something about it. Yeah. So once you've acknowledged that, you know, is there a simple course of action that someone listening to this could say, okay, well, this is what I can do about it. You know, this is how I can address the capability gap in my business. Sure. So, yes, of course, there's always something you can do. So in these particular capabilities, it's about reflection. So that reflection is what's going to get you to be like, well, you've admitted that you've got an issue, like there's clearly an issue. Then you reflect. I want you to reflect and go, okay, what is it? Like, what skills do I believe I'm lacking and in what department? And then what you should do is actually write yourself a list. You know, how big is this capability gap that I've got here? And once you write that list, then you've got to realize that business is teamwork. No person can really do business alone. Even a sole trader requires the support of their family to support them in a mentally. It requires their customers to be loyal and support them. It requires their peers to fill in or, you know, if they're sick, that every person and every business does it through teamwork. And so when you have a capability issue, it just means you don't have the right people or the right skills in that team. So the way you create your team that you are probably, let's say, you know, only half a team there is go and either find new people, like so get new blood. So even if it means making the hard decision of replacing an employee with someone that actually does have the capability set that you really need, unfortunately, you know, business is not easy. That's a hard decision that you may have to make. Another thing is, you know, go upskill yourself. When you write that list and you understand the capability gaps, Figure out which one of those things you it makes sense for you personally to go and acquire and then go and do the hard work. Again, prioritize that above anything else. It will become one of your most biggest things you have to do. So then just jump in and do it. Use a lot of experts or outside help. They're a little bit more expensive on the surface because they're external. However, in the long term, you look at the reward of not having to train them, not having to keep that cost going for a full year, trying to make more business to like to be able to justify that cost, using them sparingly, you know, if you have to, but then getting access to that all that wealth of knowledge really quickly and only in times of need is another great person or team of people to add to your team. So surround yourself with a really good professional network and that's how you build that's how you fill your capability gaps i guess i've got a really simple filter that i use Mm -hmm. to address because i've got lots of capability gaps and i use and i heard this from i think it was Vern harnish i heard him speak once and he said make it a who question not a how question Mm. right and so whenever i know that i've got a capability gap i just simply go and make it a who question so it's either who can do this for me? Yes. Which in most cases is is my preferred option. <laughs> yeah. Or who can help me with this? When you say people, you know, they realize that they've got this capability gap and then they go and try to do something about it. I think the biggest mistake is to go and try to figure it out yourself. That's actually my, you know, probably a, a key takeaway for me over the last, you know, 20 odd years of being in business is that was always the slow path. Mm-hmm. I'd much prefer, I think, as you say, go and pay an expert. So, you know, I'm a business coach, but I've also got my own business coaches. Why? Because I want to learn from the best people out there. So I want to go invest rather than investing my time. And as they say, what would I say? A poor man pays with time and a rich man pays with money or a wealthy man pays with money. Something along those lines. I'm probably, I've really messed up the quote. But anyway, (laughs) it's something along those lines. You know, rather than paying with years and years of my time, I'd prefer to go and find that expert, the who, 
that person who can really help me. So I think that's a something I see lots of people challenged with. To put this podcast together, we've got about five who's in the background who have all the capabilities that Nadia and I don't have. You know, instead of us trying to sit there and figure out how to edit the podcast, how to get it up onto iTunes, how to get it up onto Google or whatever, we've just gone and found all the people that can actually, how to build the website that goes with it. We've got all the people who can just do that stuff. So I guess that's a my really simple kind of framework of how to make your life easier. I love that. And, and another thing I just said, as a business owner, you have to become the major choreograph. That's all it is. It's choreography mm-hmm. of skills. You bring skills into the business in the right time, in the right place. A lot of people get caught chicken and egg dilemma. Oh, it's too expensive nothing more expensive than killing years of your time becoming expert in this industry. <laughs> I killed probably 20 years of my life to become an accountant. I'm really good at it. I know there's a lot of laws and I know a lot of loopholes. No, I haven't said that. <laughs> However, what I am offering my clients, I am not offering them a tax return. I'm offering years of my expertise, which I just come in a very comprised form for your fee. That's all business is. Yeah. That's how I see it. I want to add to that and because I agree, but the only thing that's lacking in that is a sense of purpose. So if you remember purpose, uh, which is I make a synonymous to that vision, like, you know, I have a passion to do this. To me, that's my purpose. You'll realize that if you really want to fulfill your purpose in life or your purpose in business, It doesn't mean you have to be expert in everything that requires your business to have. You can't be an expert in everything. You need to have the team that can help you get that purpose. And so the who is on your team is the most prominent question you need to ask yourself. Yeah. 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 And for you, Nadi, you're an accountant. If you're the best, you know, accountant out there, it's probably, you know, spending a lot of time doing the things that you're either not passionate about that don't form part of your purpose, I think, as Jenny said, or that maybe you're not that good at and you can just outsource. (laughs) Well, that's correct. That's exactly what I do. I do have a team. I'm not a sole trader. That's the reason why I'm not and never will be. I'd rather go and write a book than be, sorry, book is hard to write as well. (laughs) You need a team to write a book, apparently. (laughs) (laughs) I need a team to write a book. All right, so... What's the next? next well, okay. next one, we have priority capability now. Next, uh, people don't talk about. Change. Let's talk about change. Let's Doesn't everyone hate that word? It's a little word, but everyone hates it. Change and disruption. Yeah, they go hand in hand. People go, oh, that's change. Oh, that's disruptive. And I go, why? Why is that disruptive? If you didn't have your iPhone with you, if that change never happened, what would your life be like? You know, you've got, why do you accept some change but not others? That's my question. What do you think? Why do we accept some change? Well, change is scary because it says there is an element of unknown and there is an element of self-doubt whether you will fit in in a new life. Change introduces something you haven't envisaged yet where your place will be in this new new world. That's what I think. It's the biggest disentrenched fear of us. It's an inner insecurity. But some people are more risky and they like to ride the wave. And this is where you so, come different attitude to so change. You look at the risk appetite. You know, is change relevant to risk? You know, are people that won't, you know, jump off, like say a, a cliff, you know, doing bungee jumping, right? That's a big risk. Do you have to be that brave in order to accept change? I say no. You don't have to be that brave. Not everyone has got the appetite for doing that. But 
everyone actually has the appetite for change. They're just selective change like that. Let's be real. It's selective change. It's change when it suits you, but it's then resistance when it suits you. And so that's what people don't talk about. And so what I want to say is why are people being so selective with change? Which ones are let into their lives and which ones they resist like a plague? And so what I believe organizations are doing wrong is they're putting it on the person oh, you know, my staff, they just won't, they won't accept change. Like, you know, it, it's too much for them, just too much. How often do you hear that? It's just too much. Oh, we can't do that because it's just too much. Why is it too much? Is it that you haven't prepared them well enough to go, that's not too much? Hey, everyone, should we not be excited about this? Look at the positive things that will happen if this happens. That all the difference between selective change and resistance change is awareness and desire. That's it, awareness and desire. And so if, for example, a small organisation needs to introduce a new an example of a client right it's a small team six or seven people but it make they make large dollars right this efficient team has been operating so long with let's say two or three key people that have been running the management and the finance side of the business and they've been using a system that is so old-fashioned and you know they really really would benefit from the change where their time it takes would be reduced by almost 70 percent their frustrations would technically go away their capacity to do more fulfilling personal work would be there all positive reasons for change and yet they here they are they're fearful they're trying to say no we don't need something different and i look back and i go i don't understand when we got in there why they feel this way and all we had to do was show them the other side like okay just imagine for a minute like this change has happened and let's look at what your life would be right and because that's the trouble with change because people don't understand what's been given to them change wise well enough to go what will that look like once i go through the change and what will my life be at work like or what will my personal life with change be like and go oh i actually really want that i, I see the benefit of that it's a no-brainer as soon as people go oh my god okay, sign me up now, because they've seen it, then that's the biggest trouble. Get them to visualize this change. And the hardest part is the people that are teaching the change can't visualize it themselves either. That's why there's not enough change managers in the world is because, again, leaders aren't born change managers. So if they aren't a natural and organic change manager where they can inspire people through any change to see what the actual benefits and the you know what the post change picture looks like then hire change managers to do that you know have change managers on your staff that are really good at that so that people are never fearful of change and because if you can get rid of that stigma around change and people are willing to adopt anything you throw at them they're ready to adopt it once they realize what it is you just make them realize it and then if they're in that sort of mode of like oh wow I I can visualize everything because you've taught me that skill then you can be so much more progressive as a firm and you can start becoming more agile and start doing a lot of things faster and as soon as you start bringing speed of decision making because you can introduce things faster which is in definition what agility is in business that will take you you know leaps and bounds and that's what we try to promote with organizations get agility through challenging this concept of change 
with change, what, as I have noticed, it's two types of attitudes. One is very progressive, and this is what you're talking about, promoted early adoption. They always get a worm. That's uh, how I see it. And there are a steamroller analogy. It's your choice whether you want to be part of steamroller or part of the road. It's up to you. That's the decision you have to make. But this is a late, it's luggers. They are facing this dilemma with a hope on, but it's already the progress moved on. And now they're forced to do this decision. So this is a passive, it's a blast, we call it, of humanity who is will wait until the last point when you have to jump on or, or, or you just completely will be rolled out. Mm-hmm. That's, uh, I think. Because you got to look at why humans do that. Yeah, why laggards are laggards. And that's, if you look at the, the bell curve for when he talks about early adopters and, and laggards, it's the majority of people are laggards, right, or late adopters. And so you look at it and go, why? Why is humanity like that? And what it is, is, you know, people like their safety blanket. They love being comfortable. And you can use that to your strength is what we teach. It's like, okay, just acknowledge that individuals feel this way. They go through these emotions when it comes to change. They almost, we, we, if there's an, there's an actual um, tool in change management, it's a grieving process. So if when change comes and think of someone passes away, think about the stages you go through, shock and then denial and then anger and then sadness and then you start you know, accepting it's happened and you sort of move through this low and then become go back to normal, right? There's a curve. If I told you now everyone goes through that similar curve when they're confronted with something even as simple as a small change in front of them, people should know that. Like people should know that humans feel. And so change and even business is about feeling. How do they feel at work? What do they do? How do they feel when they do work? So what will they feel like when something new happens at work? Just deal with the feelings. Like it's people and business are not remote from each other and we've gone through years and decades of businesses trying to get away with not having to deal with emotional stuff at work right it's like it's your crap leave it at home don't come to work with it right but you're human we're human we can't leave it at home and so the best organizations the ones that actually you know are at the front of that like don't just simply accept it but actually use that knowledge and that insight about we are dealing with humans here. So let's get on the front foot with that. Let's actually create environments that are really safe and comfortable and encouraging and, you know, future thinking because then we'll get that. And so that is how you combat change by actually changing. Like that's the only way organizations do it. Actually making so many changes but making the environment safe to make those changes is my best advice in terms of even both small or large. Because what people do expect after changes, any change will, uh, they will be retrenched and all uh, because of lack of skill or age and everything. It's it's a lot of this embedded insecurities would be out there. So any, what you are saying, any change has to be managed through the feelings of the people. You have to acknowledge them. This is what's going to be. And what they're feeling about fear. Yes. And you have to work with the fear. You just cannot ignore it and just say my way or highway because you will end up on your own. So it's just really framing change in the right way. Yeah, absolutely. That is all the job of change manager does, which is why I'm happy to share with everybody that is not even a change manager to go, just learn from the principles of it where it's about addressing it head on and finding a way to move people through the emotions of awareness, desire. And it requires a little bit of, you know, sharing information, sharing of knowledge, being really transparent with things. And then actually having open, honest discussions. People appreciate open, honest discussions, even in a business workplace. Mm. I'm a bit of an advocate of change, and I think I 
well, at least I think I change a lot. I'm always making, you know, some sort of changes. But the way that I'll frame it is, for instance, in saying, okay, I want to make some changes to my diet. I'm just going to trial this out. Mm -hmm. I'm going to test it out, see how it goes, right? And so Nadia probably knows I've been testing stuff out for (laughs) quite a while now and lots of different things. And what's happened is that most a lot of those things have become habit. So now my diet over the last, let's say, three years has changed significantly from being, you know, high in sugar, high in carbs, you know, just probably a really poor diet to being a really good diet, cut out, you know, all sugar, pretty much um, all carbs, all that type of stuff. So, And that's I, hard. Like that, that's actually really hard to do because I'm trying to do the same. It's really hard to do. But at least it's a mindset thing. As soon it, as you accept it. But, but you also frame it. And the other tool that I use is it's easy to look at the – it's easy to be fearful of change because, as you said, you don't quite know what's on the other side, right? But the reality is that if you don't change, what's on the other side of doing nothing, right, is going to keep you in exactly the same situation. And sometimes it's a far scarier picture and people don't realise well, that. Well, I think that if painting that picture can be a major advantage if, if you want to actually make change, saying, okay, well, this is the reality now. If we don't change anything, I mean, you know, Nadia, I'm sure, you know, if she's dealing with someone who's making a loss and, you know, on a monthly basis, if they don't change anything, what's going to happen? The reality is they're not going to have a business, mm-hmm. right? And, you know, so then hopefully that would alleviate that fear of change. Agreed. So another thing I would say is information overload is probably another challenge. We live in a data age or an information. Well, I call it a data age, but I don't say it's an information age yet. There's plenty of data out there. You know, think about large organisation, even a small organisation where, you know, there's a lot of sales receipts, transactions, lots of things happening, numbers, figures, words, everywhere. Like the entire ERP systems are, you know, thousands of lines big, right? That's data, data, data. But people actually don't understand how information works. Data is not information. Data is formed in a shape to give you information. So you form it in this way, like shape A, it, gives, it tells you this thing. That thing it tells you is information. Then reshape it, reform it, and gives you another thing. That second piece is also information. People, first of all, don't understand data. And second of all, don't know what information they even need to look for from the data to be able to actually survive in business. And so what do they go by? Instinct. They go by information that or data they or information and data they used years ago to like, you know, to dictate what they do in the future. And this is dangerous. It really and no not enough people talk about it. There is such a huge information management gap in business. And I feel like I'm the only one really talking about it. Like people know and they'll say, oh, you know, I just need to have this, this and this and then I'll be able to do that decision. They say it as if like it's oh, it's a wish list thing. Oh, I wish if, if only I could have that information, I would be able to, you know, do this faster or, or make that decision quicker. But they don't actually go, why don't I have that information faster? Oh, that's because my systems are too slow. You know, it takes like a, a month to get, you know, last month's results. It takes me a month. So I don't bother waiting for them. I, I'll just continue doing, you know, soldiering on. Why do we do that? Why don't we stop and go, hang on a minute, go back to prioritization. Isn't information and knowledge power? We've all heard that. And so you're running your business blind to some extent if you don't demand, not just ask, demand real-time accurate information. And so what lets an organization down and the challenges they face is that's really hard to get. 
first of all, like really hard to extract out of a system because, you know, usually it sits with the IT department going, they know where all the data is, they know how to manage the data, but they don't know what a business needs to tell them or to give it to them because they're not the ones usually responsible for reporting. They're the ones who have the responsible for the systems behind the reporting. And then you have your finance team or your systems or, you know, your people that need to extract that information that have actually no idea about the system and go, I actually don't know how to what report to pull out. I don't know how to get that information. So then they get some information now and then they put it into Excel and then they manipulate it in Excel and go, okay, I've prepared information now. And then that process takes days sometimes, sometimes months. And I go, oh, my goodness, that is way too hard. If you're doing it that way, it is way too hard. Let's talk about that. So what it should be, again, painting the picture of what can happen, what actually does happen in some realities of some business that, you know, that we touch, is that information, you click a button and there it is. Something you need is available to you. And then before you click that button, you have top 10 things that you know which buttons you want to click. Like you just actually know because information management starts before the system starts. It starts with you actually having a clue about your strategy and then going, I know what information I actually need to make the decisions I need to make around that strategy. You start there. And so most people get caught up in either accepting that they don't have the information or go, oh, I'll get it eventually. And actually don't stop for a minute and demand that you get it here and now. And again, if you don't or are not in a position to get it here and now, change something, change your systems, change the people that are getting the information that to have the capabilities to get it for you, change something, and then change yourself to actually know which information you want and need. For me, it's extremely important point. And this is first thing I start is addressing in any consulting session, clients come in and they want to improve their business. First thing is first, I establish monitoring system extracting relevant data from relevant source. Relevant source, putting them on a cloud, a very efficient way of using the record keeping. That's how I do it. Without these monitors, it's like a body in a hospital. How do I know your heart rate? How can I advise or give you any direction to your business if I don't know your pulse, your saturation levels, anything? That's what for me information is in a smaller context. It's like how I apply it. And get, getting this data extracting, I teach them what they need to look on a weekly basis. But they only can look it after managing. They have got a little system in place, which means reconciliation. They mm-hmm. have to reconcile it. Mm-hmm. They have to allocate those transactions in the right cubbyhole. That's what I call reconciliation. Is. Yeah. And it's this playful way of addressing data management for small to medium businesses, which just also applicable for big businesses, larger businesses as well. Large businesses still take a month to reconcile. They take a month to process transactions of the month. And then they all facing post-mortem analysis of cause of death. (laughs) That's nothing else. That's what's happening because the current system and what data management, smart, intelligent data management, it's your little spies into the the way your system operates to be able to step in right there and then when change occurred to you benefit and capitalize on it or to your detriment and seize it. Do you know what's funny and ironic is that organizations that are, you know, struggling or not achieving their goals are looking for all these clues outside in the external world. What can I do differently? What new thing can I try? And they look out. 
They need to just look in. Like, they need to look in their data. Their data has all the secrets they could ever want to know. They just need to know how to tap into it. And it's become an entire new world and a new science, right? But again, unless... So there are experts in it now, right, which is fantastic. But unless you accept that you are looking for that expert, you know, you're never going to be able to get that skill set and that capability in-house. And so start looking inside people. Yes. But let's talk about maybe uh, measuring the right things. Is I think what you're saying is all information is not good information. Correct. Like you actually want to really know, as you say, what your priorities are and where you want to focus but the other side to that is and i think relating back to something that nadia said is that if if you're doing an analysis of of data that's you know if if you're doing an analysis of something that's already occurred and i think the best resource that i've kind of read for this is four disciplines of execution you read that book it's a great book but it talks about lead indicators and lag indicators and the reality is that most and I keep coming, I keep generalizing that there are lots of businesses out there that measure lag indicators. And your lag indicators are what gives you that postmortem analysis. They're your, you know, your profit and loss after the fact. They're your, even your sales figures, you know, the month after. And coming back to one of your earlier points, what we really need to do is look at how we can drive the behaviors that cause the changes that we want to, and in this case, if we're measuring, say, our bottom line, how do we focus on those, let's call them lead indicators, mm-hmm. and how do we extract that information or, or how do we get that information in a, in a more timely manner? Sure. So the first thing I would recommend is collaboration because which sort of is a good segue to my next point about the next challenge that's massive. It's the silo challenge or the disconnected challenge where you have an organisation, whether it's big or small, and no one talks to each other um, well enough. And so they all do their own individual parts and they believe that they or they act like they're in isolation of each other. And so information then acts as if it's an isolation of each other. So if you actually want to understand the right, and I call it honestly a top 10 list, if you can't identify as a business, not as a team, not as a department, but as a business, only top 10 pieces of information you need to drive that business that you don't have enough focus or clarity around your strategy and your direction. So isolating the top 10 pieces of information is really easy. And it the way you get it is by talking. Talk to your team. And I, when I mean team, I mean every aspect of your team. So if it's not realistic to talk to your entire firm, if you're a large firm, but make all the senior leadership team talk to each other. Make them as a collective, as a collaborative effort, decide on the top 10 and put things into perspective as a singular business unit. If you're a small team, if you're a mum and dad, you know, talk to the five employees that you have and all seven of you decide on the top 10 list of the information this business needs to thrive. And that requires debate. It requires discussion. It requires rebuttal. It requires a healthy conversation around why is that really important versus that one. And and I'm not here to say there is a magic answer of what that top 10 looks like, but the way to get it is through a collaboration process of discussion. And once you get the 10 and it, you put it through the rigor of what, you know, you almost have to pick it apart, to put it back together, then that is what is going to take you through probably about three to four years. It's not a forever list. 
but it's definitely longer than a 12-month list. And so that's your aim. Don't have information you're going to need for the next 20 years. That's what your vision's for. Just have the critical information for the next two to three years, which is usually the ideal period of your strategy. What information do you need to execute your strategy, period? That's it. So could I add to that? One of the things that can often be overlooked is that we talk in especially larger organizations, we might be talking with senior leadership teams and things like that, and they're always the ones that get heard. And, I mean, to me, if I really want to get to the bottom of what's wrong in an organization or how an organization can start to do things better, I probably actually want to talk to the people on the ground. So the first person I'll probably want to go to is maybe an admin assistant or, you know, someone who answers the phones or someone who's actually selling products, you know, if it's if it's a retail store or something like that, the person who's actually selling products and maybe the person who's selling more products than, you know, outperforming the rest of the retail team. So I guess I'd probably say even, you know, go a little bit further than just, if you're in a larger organization, go a little bit further than just those higher level, lead, the higher level leadership. I, I completely agree. So, but what happens is the, so the silo effect starts department by department, and each department in theory becomes its own organization. It's even made to become its own organization because usually there's an accountability of profit and loss uh, on that department where uh, they have to hold their own, right? And that that's, to me, one of the fundamental sort of root causes is structure, organizational design and structure of what creates silos. And so to break silos in any regard, you need to almost address the starting point, which is the structure. But even with a structure, you can still break down silos through conversation and understanding that some people do too much talking and they're the ones who actually need to do more listening and the people that don't even get the opportunity to do a lot of talking i.e the people on the ground are the ones that actually need to be, be given the opportunity to talk and so if we break down this silo it starts with a sequence of steps the first step is get to the senior leadership team to start talking to each other that's to me step one Achieve that where, okay, at least there's a collaboration at the top level, at the leadership level. Then continue collaboration because the only thing that breaks silos is collaboration. So I cannot stress that word enough, collaborate, collaborate, collaborate. And so how that shapes in a business is start discussing openly at a leadership team, then start going down in those, you know, in the structures you currently already have, which is your department or in the case of a small business, the rest of the team, right, start now talking to them and collaborating with them. People will do more for you if they feel included to do so and are driven by the same drive or the same passion that you are. Again, use that to your strengths. That's the best tip I can give you is there is so much valuable gold nuggets down there in that ground level and if you start like peeling back and go from the ground and then the second level above that and then eventually make your way up through the entire stream you will have uncovered so many amazing ideas amazing thoughts amazing insights that you would pay experts like us to tell you once we go in and do you know how we find that information because we start asking your ground people and the people above them for that same information so if you want you even to use your experts like us wisely start the process already already be more informed about your own organization through collaboration break the silos and then you'll really understand your capability gaps you won't have a lack of ideas trust me on that like there'll be plenty of people in your organization that will come up with amazing ideas then what you may 
find a challenge is implementation and execution. And that's where, you know, experts who have specialty skills, like, you know, we do project management. So we have, spe- there is a specialty skill set there to execute projects well. And then, then you can acknowledge whether you have that capabilities in-house or whether you need external. But the idea is I think people underestimate how many ideas are out there. I'm not the one who comes up with the best idea. I'm the one who just makes that idea work. And I think in a lot of organisations, there's no shortage of good ideas. Perhaps a shortage of the ability to execute, as you say, and perhaps a shortage of the ability to really prioritise those ideas. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, one idea really well executed is is likely to outperform 10 ideas which are, you know, really poorly executed. Yeah, 100%. And so, I mean, that in a nutshell is probably, I don't know how many that was, but that's roughly, I would say at this point in time, the best thing I can share with you in terms of the challenges that are really facing people, the ones that people don't necessarily openly talk about. Uh, And so my sort of concluding, sort of summarising sort of message in terms of how I can give the audience an unfair advantage in that is talk about these things that no one else is talking about. So if you do it in in this step, like start talking about the number one, like if you now prioritise the effort to change some of these things, you'll not only combat the challenge, but you'll also be able to use that challenge proactively in part of the solution. If you talk about capabilities being lacking and talking about that, then by filling those capabilities, you've now completely changed the force that your team is now in terms of how forceful it can be. If you accept something is constant, the only thing that is constant is change and then start changing proactively, you will now combat the challenge and make it part of your solution. If you understand that there is a lot of information overload out there, so be really selective and focused about what information you're looking for. And then when you see, you know, the big wide where there's so much information out there for you, you'll be able to know actually how to sift through that and figure out what you need. And basically try to, you know, the the major lesson here is avoid being disrupted and try to be the disruptor. The best takeout from this is do something to disrupt, not someone else, because we can have win-wins here. We don't have, someone else doesn't have to lose in order for you to win, but you have to know that you have to disrupt your industry, shake it up, do something in order for you truly to succeed. And for me, is go to the business not to make money, but to create a change. That's basically I would conclude from. I can care. (laughs) Absolutely. Okay. So thank you for sharing all this stuff with us. How can our listener connect with you or find out more about you? Sure. So I'm an active blogger on social media. So you can find me on LinkedIn under just my name, Jenny Junkier Company. So Junkier has a Facebook and a LinkedIn company page as well. Our website is a really good source of information about how we think and this holistic concept. So everything I've shared with you so far is individualized in terms of challenges that I'm bringing to you and in you know, the 20 years of experience I've been in business. But how we've actually used that information to actually do something about it, like you said, I'm in business to really enact change in others, in particular in optimizing organizations. And so we have a framework that we believe in that makes all of these things come together, this connectivity of all these thoughts. There is an art of business and that's what we you know, I've spent my whole life end up I've now end up spending my whole life doing. Uh, and it's come through the form of what we call this Junkier 8 lens. And that's on our website, so www.junkier.com.au. Now our contact details for our office so, you know, is on there. But it, more than anything is try to engage with us on what we're trying to say is, you know, you can be better 
just start doing better. That's it. And that's really what we want to get organizations to know. Thank you. Fantastic. All right. Thanks for thanks for being here, Jenny. No, thanks for having me. Great. Thanks for listening to the Unfair Advantage Project. For more curated resources, visit us at unfairadvantageproject.com.